one of my big outfits, multi-million dollar company. But like I said, I was busy doing some other stuff, yeah, and, um, and, um, yeah, they, what happened was they had some customer complaints in the company, and they, they let them build up, and they created a case out of Utah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The other, uh, yeah, the other 49 states, hey, we ain't got no problem with this guy's company, you know, but it was just Utah. And they really, uh, yeah, you know, the Mormons and the whole nine, so they kind of really, yeah, uh, really took it to another spot. <laughs> Behind the Badge, ripped from the case files with Donna Harris. Actual arresting officers from the United States Postal Inspection Service and stories of greed, deception, and fraud. Now your host, Donna Harris. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Badge, ripped from the case files of postal inspectors. I'm Donna Harris, your host. In today's episode, this is a follow-up. We did an episode on a mailer um, who just was a prolific scammer. So I'm joined again by Postal Inspector Travis Smooth from the Phoenix Division. Inspector Smooth, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. So today's show is really going to tell you about that that mailer because he was a very interesting character. Uh, So, but before we do that, I know yesterday's episode, we talked about the options that you had. I want to clarify a few things and explain um, just what he was really offering and how much you had to spend. Because I don't know if I wanted to spend $39.97 or should I spend $9.97? Let's talk a little bit more about that, Travis. Yeah. So what the scheme really is, it's, it's a work from home scheme that allows people to do participate in a mailing spot program. And so what the victim would receive is an opportunity to participate in really one of four options. And those four options on the low level, you'd spend about $997. And with that, you'd have unlimited rights uh, to get this master booklet. And then you could send that, that information to another potential buyer. And that book was for $297. And then you'd get a, you know, you'd, you'd get a huge portion of that money back. You'd get 90% and, and 10% would go back to Paul Park. And then you could even go up to as high as $3,997 and just allow Paul Park and his company to do all the work for you. And then you could really maximize your returns and receive hundreds of thousands of dollars back. And so that's really what the program and the scheme is on a, on a quick overview from last time's episode. You would, you know, purchase one of those options and the individuals actually buying that, that booklet, they were spending $297. Right. Good, good deal. If you can get it, it seems like there's a big red flag in there. It seems that, you know, if you're going to get 90% and the uh, Paul Parks is going to get 10%, they're not getting much to do a whole lot of work. So that might've been um, one of the red flags, but talk to me about this individual because he w- I see he's talking about his multi-million dollar company uh, in the clip and how um, there wasn't a problem till he got to Utah. So tell us a little bit about um, the man behind the, the mailing or the man behind the stamp. Yeah. So really early on in the investigation, we could easily identify who was involved. And like we talked about before, uh, in the previous episode was 
these companies only lasted about six months before it changed to a new business name and a very similar opportunity from another location. But when really as an investigator, as you dive down and start looking at all of the information that's available, uh, we, we identified the individual as Darren Fordham, who was out of California. And it was really early on, probably within about a month of the investigation after looking at the complaints, we identified that name. So one of the first things we needed to understand was, was this name Darren Fordham, was it a real person? Was it a fake name used? Who was this person? And was it part of a sham or, or part of another type of fraud? But what we started to do is started looking into the information that we had available. We had the name, we had an address, we had an identification card, and we started looking into some open source media. We started looking into search engines, and we started looking to see what and who this person was. And really, as we started identifying who Darren Fordham was, he was a self-proclaimed entrepreneur. And one of the interesting things we found was he was actually listed on IMDb. Of all the places I had ever considered to look, it wasn't IMDb, which is that internet uh, movie database. And under that, there was a section for Darren Fordham uh, using a, a name South Boy. And so Fordham had several things on that profile, including some movies that had been done, um, some music uh, productions. Um, he was kind of listed as a, as a producer, an actor, a writer. And so we found this really interesting as to how could somebody in that field turn to scamming victims throughout the United States. Another thing that really came out was that it really started in 1998 because as we looked in, into his criminal history, we found a small federal case out of Florida, which showed that he had actually gone to federal prison for a short period of time for mail fraud, and he was investigated by the FBI. And so as soon as we saw that, we thought, hey, you know, if he's done fraud in the past, it's very likely that he's still participating or that he could be the person responsible for this fraud as he's tied to this particular business name. So he was a recidivist. So this wasn't his first rodeo with, uh, with, the, mail, with the mail fraud scam. Right. That's exactly right. Talk about, you know, the investigation, his arrest. And, you know, he referred to, you know, this is a multimillion dollar company. And it wasn't until I got to Utah that the Mormons had a problem with me. So give me, give me some insight into that. You know, what did he make? What did he spend his money on? He, he's kind of interesting because he's already been arrested for this. So, geez, this is a way of life for him, it seems. Uh, talk about that, uh, Inspector Travis. Yeah. So really, when he was when he was arrested back in 1998, um, he had some time and opportunity to kind of get away from that life. But it, we started seeing throughout the investigation that some of these businesses that were involved in complaints and frauds uh, that are tied to his name uh, were ongoing in 2006. So from 2006 to 2014, it's really interesting to see how he could, you know, how he could really change his business so consistently to stay under the radar. 
Um, and like I said, there, there were other agencies looking into this guy uh, or at least into some of the business names. But the way that the complaints were, um, they were under different names. It wasn't under Darren Fordham. It was under Paul Park or someone else. And so as we investigated it and started putting all the pieces together and looked at hundreds, if not thousands of complaints, we started to see that consistent message and the consistent theme. And that's where we started putting together who was responsible, who was involved. And all of these businesses that he started working into all showed the name Darren Fordham. And so that was a really good indication that we were on the right track and that he was the, really the one responsible uh, for the frauds that were occurring. And then we were able to really envelop the rest of the United States and their cases because in some ways he believed that this was just a civil matter. He was running a business and he was getting all this money, but he never paid back victims from this particular case. You know, people would complain they wanted their money back and not a single one got a penny from this park publishers or park distributors. So, so it was, what did he tell people when they didn't get their money back? So really he, he would shut off the phone line and just not talk to them. I, I mean, he would get letters and he would just not respond to them. Uh, the phone numbers would go would go bad. It would just be either a bad or a busy signal or um, a cancellation of a line. So as these people talked over the phone, it just would disappear. And so then he would just move on to another business. And in 2014, he did that. He continued into different business names and, and dif- different companies using different individuals. And just continued the exact same scheme, just with a little bit of a difference with a name. How did we find my? Don't get don't give me any investigative details. But just tell me how how, <laughs> did, how did we put it together in layman's well, terms? Yeah. So so the way that this investigation really took off is we we identified Mr. Fordham, and we were looking at the different types of complaints. But in the systems that we were looking at, the victims. When they were reporting it, they didn't know who Mr. Fordham was. They didn't know the guy behind the scheme. All they were reporting was, I got a promotional offer. I sent all this money to a company such as uh, Park Distributors or Park Publishers or Paul Park. And so they were sending money orders and checks to these independent companies. But at the end of the day, all the money was being filtered uh, to Mr. Fordham. And so as we were looking at the different cases and the different referrals, really in the state of Utah, it was kind of a small case. I mean, if you were to look at the scheme of things, uh, I think I only initially received maybe nine complaints. So it was enough for us to get our attention, but it really, really, until we started digging into it, it didn't seem like it was that big of a case at first. Um, the customers were complaining that they had lost, you know, a thousand dollars here or three thousand dollars there. Um, but as we started looking into it, we started seeing consistencies, and so um, we actually attempted to go through a civil route. Uh, we contacted, we knew who his attorney was. We looked at cases from um, California. Our inspectors in California had done an administrative action which they use their authority to send him a cease and desist and say, stop participating in this activity. And he didn't, he just changed the name. So they would send a cease and desist on one business name, but then he would just pop up a new business name and continue that same activity. In fact, if you were to compare all of these scams, 
they are identical in the mailings, except for maybe some photographs changed or some phone numbers changed or the business name changed. Uh, but other than that, I've lined them up side by side and they are identical. The words, the phrases, the, the promotions for the most part. And some of those changed a little bit, but they were, they were identical. And so, so he was just a, just a, uh, you know, did he ever did he ever sign any of those cease and desist orders, or he just signed them and moved on to next uh, the next day? Yeah, yeah. So he would comply with that particular cease and desist, but he wouldn't stop the activity. He would just change the name. So how did we actually bring him to prosecution? Yeah. So I mean, like I said before, I mean, our Utah case, I think we only had about forty thousand dollars in losses when we first started looking into this. So we we considered doing the same thing. We started the process of telling him to cease and desist. We were going to get him to that process, but it didn't. It, he didn't cease and desist. He continued. And at some point in our office, we decided, you know, this is frustrating. Let's bring him to justice. And so we actually reached out to our U.S. attorney's office and said, this guy has continued. We've seen a pattern. We have another case in California. Would you be interested? We have a business address in Park City, Utah. Would you be interested in prosecuting this case? And they turned to us and said, yeah, we'll open up an initial case so you can actually do the law enforcement side. You can collect subpoenas and, and get everything you need to, to see if it's a big enough case. And so that's, the, that's what we did. We started looking and following the trail. We followed the money. We followed all of that paperwork and all of that, that stuff that becomes evidence. Okay, so following the money is always what I hear. If you follow the money, you'll follow the fraud. That's exactly right. Because once you start following where that money goes, it has to end somewhere. It goes into someone's bank account. It goes somewhere that we can actually investigate. So in this case, we started looking at the victim complaints. We started looking at where the checks were cashed. We started looking at the small referrals that we had, and we started noticing that all of them were cashed at the same check casher in Sherman Oaks, California. So one of the steps we did is we asked, and we, we received the uh, documentation necessary uh, to obtain information from those check cashers. And we were able to identify that over 1,500 checks, in fact, it was over 1,600 checks, were cashed under the name of Darren Fordham. And so when we started adding up all of the money that had been cashed during this, it was, a, it was about a nine-month period. It was from January of 14 to September of 14. So in that short time period, he had cashed uh, $1,594,000 and some uh, through this check casher. And as you know, check cashers charge outrageous fees. And I think it was over $72,000 in fees just to cash those checks. And this is where we understood where all the victims were coming from. We got the results. We found all the money coming in. And we identified that this really impacted every single state. It impacted every victim or, or victims in every state. And so that's really when we came back to the attorneys and said, hey, in nine months, this guy did over $1.5 million with all 50 states being impacted. That's where the U.S. Attorney's Office said, yes, we will take this case and we will prosecute it. So one of the first things that we had to do was really understand 
what the scheme was and where the investigation needed to go. So in 2015, we needed to reach out to the victims. I mean, we're looking at information of all these victims. And so we started our criminal case and we sent out over 300 mailings to uh, what we believed were victims, presumed victims. And of those 300 plus mailings that we sent out, we had 63 responses. And this was kind of like a questionnaire where we go out and say, hey, did you ever do business with this company? Um, were you were you defrauded? Did you ever send them money? And we started seeing a lot of people coming back saying, yeah, we were victim. Here's the documentation. I, I lost this amount of money. And we started seeing a theme. The people that were responding, they were they were individuals that could remember or tried to remember, but a lot of them that we knew were victims because Fordham cashed their check. A lot of these victims said, I don't know this business. I've never done business with them. I've never sent them money. And after talking to them and understanding their situation, a lot of them were elderly. They didn't remember. Um, some of them had been going through memory loss. Uh, some of them that we tried to reach to within that year of trying to reach the victims, some of them were even deceased. And so it was really hard for us to get the best outcome and, and identify every single victim. But with that, we were able to get a good representation and learn that not a single one of those who had responded were ever paid out and ever received a dime from our company that we were investigating as, as part publishers and distributors. It's like he didn't even care. It's, it's a sad story. So that uh, that very sad story. So so tell me more um, about uh, the, I know he used different phone numbers, things of that nature. nature. Tell me more about the investigation. Yeah. So um, in one of the things that we tried to do was anytime we got a tip, it seemed to be about three to six months late. So, hey, I'm a victim. Here's my documentation. And by the time the victim actually reported it, his business was closed and a new business was operational, but we didn't know what that new business was quite yet. And so what we would do is we would take the information from the victim and they would provide us with copies or the originals. And on some of them, they would have testimonials that had phone numbers. I actually called one of the testimonials and, uh, and they came back and it was actually a phone number that went to uh, a gift card promotion. It wasn't actually the person who it claimed to be. It claimed to be um, a mother and daughter who had participated in one of his promotions. It seems like he had so many businesses. What were some of the business names? Oh, well, so throughout the investigation, we identified dozens of uh, businesses that he was operating. In fact, I put together a list and I found 32 unique business names that Mr. Fordham was directly involved with using 26 unique addresses throughout Utah, California, Nevada, and Florida. And so when I started looking at these businesses, I started seeing businesses that were uh, at least operated in 2006 all the way through 2015. And in fact, after this whole case kind of came to a head, we also started seeing stuff as, as late as 2018 as well when we actually arrested him. But some of them were, you know, release day books, awesome books, donation bids, gift card broker, uh, park publishers and distributors, premium promotions, uh, venture services, summer cash and gas. Uh, and so some of these businesses 
they were all similar in nature where they would participate in some type of scheme and there would be some type of, of large return that were coming back to the victim. Once they got your letter, did they do anything like go on, go on a search engine site to look to find out about it? Is there anything that they could have done? I guess I'm trying to say before this happened, before they sent their money. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times, I mean, doing your due diligence really will make a huge difference in the case. And the other thing about this case is that if some of the victims actually did do the, do some due diligence. And so one of the victims actually printed out like an, uh, like an article that she found online where it said, Hey, this is a huge opportunity of coming out for park publishers and distributors out of Utah. And that was super credible, but I mean, I don't know who put up that website. It wasn't really a trustworthy website, but as they searched for these companies, there were things out there that helped convince them, you know, whether it was a website, whether it was a testimonial phone number that they did. Um, there were a lot of things that steps that were taken to really continue the scheme. It looks like he, you said you continued the scam into 2018. Where was he doing this from? Yeah. So going back into this investigation side. So in 2018, um, I had been working closely with another agent uh, to investigate the case. And we both flew out to California to try to track down these businesses, try to track down the locations to see if it was still operational. And as we went to every single one of these businesses, it was either a P.O. box or um, or a, a private mailbox service like the UPS store. And that's where all the mailings were going to. And there were a couple of small rental uh, business units that he was renting, but we could never really catch up to him current. It was all older information from the investigation. And so as we continued to look into that, we flew out, we couldn't find him and we, we came back to Utah. So after you couldn't find him, what did you do? So we came back to the drawing board. We decided to see if we could find out what he was doing and where he was operating from. And one of the things that we did was we started looking at kind of the mailings. Who was his source? Who was mailing out all of his promotions? And maybe that could have been a good way for us to find out where he was. But in doing so, we didn't necessarily find his location, but we did find out something super interesting. So we did find through one of his mailers. He had multiple mailers. Um, and when I say mailers, I mean companies that actually will mail and print or mailing and print service, and they'll do all the mailings for you. And so we had contacted one of those companies and found out that he had 56 invoices over about a one-year period. Um, and he had paid that mailer over $400,000 to send over 525,000 mailings during that time period. And so as we talk about the magnitude of who was responding to this and his impact, I mean, if you were to look, he was impacting half a million people in less than a year. I mean, that's a significant amount of people that he could, he could go out and reach uh, with these scams. And he so bought one, these lists. He bought these lists from list brokers. Well, I wish I knew exactly where he got the lists. I knew he had significant amounts of lists uh, that he was getting names and addresses to. But 
we, he never would talk to us uh, about where he got those lists. Right. So he conceivably could have made multi-millions in, in this particular scam. If he had actually gotten a hit, if his pitch landed perfectly with everyone that he actually sent a mailing to. Yeah. And that's just the small time period that we were looking into during that in 2014. If we just narrowed it down to there, I mean, he did 1.5 million in one year. And, you know, with all the resources and all the time that we put into it, we believe that there's more stuff out there. But this was the only stuff that we were able to um, to positively identify and and proceed with an indictment against him. So you you you're coming to a great place. So tell me about the prosecution, the indictment, the arrest. Because I'd like to figure out you know how did you how did you find this individual? Yeah. So um, we officially opened up a criminal investigation in 2015, and it took quite some time to actually go through and do all the interviews and collect all the evidence. And in October of 2018, we worked with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Utah, and we were able to secure an indictment uh, against Mr. Fordham. It was an indictment of frauds and swindles. It was uh, 18 U.S. Code 1341, and we secured a, a warrant for his arrest. And that's when we, during that same time period, uh, within about a week, we received some leads and tips that led us to Las Vegas, Nevada, where he was uh, living, and we were able to track him down and um, and arrest him. Was he surprised when you arrested him? <sighs> yeah. Um, so it was kind of interesting. So I drove down the night before. So again, I, I cover Utah, but I, we're out of Salt Lake City. So I drove down the day before. Uh, so on November 6th, and I did some, or sorry, on November 7th. And I did some surveillance. I wanted to make sure he was there. Um, obviously, tips and leads need to be verified. So we didn't want to just go in and expect him to be there. We just wanted to see if he was there. And so on November 8th, we had a positive confirmation that it was him. Um, I was very familiar with what he looked like, how he operated. And as I was sitting in the parking lot calling some of my colleagues, so there's an, we have inspectors in Las Vegas, I was getting to them saying, hey, I need some help. We need to arrest this guy. I've got a warrant. Uh, he decided to get into his car and drive. So we followed him. Um, and surprisingly, he went to a UPS store and uh, he did some mailings. And so we followed him to the UPS store and we tried to uh, arrest him. Um, it, we threw a vehicle stop, but uh, he actually he actually escaped us from uh by the time we, we hadn't turned on our lights and sirens at that point, we were still getting in position, but he had, he had made a couple turns and we lost them in traffic. So what we had done is we actually just decided to go and knock on his front door. So we walked up to his apartment, uh, knocked on the door. He opened the door and we took him into custody without any incident. And so one of the things that we did observe was at the foot of his door, just right at the front, there were two or three tubs full of mail ready to go out and looking as the door was open, looking into the apartment, we could see mailings and printers and a lot of different things that were not consistent with a typical house. Uh, it actually looked like he was printing and producing these mailings uh, from his house. 
And so after we arrested him, uh, we tried to do an interview and uh, he did not want to talk to investigators about what the arrest was about or any of the questions that we had for him. Uh, so we took him into custody and uh, he went to a detention center. And that night we ended up getting a search warrant for his apartment. Uh, we went to the judge, got a search warrant. And the following day we searched uh, his house, or his unit, and found so much evidence related to new schemes and old schemes uh, and, and the victims. So as we were conducting the search, we, we obtained a federal search warrant. Um, we found there were, I believe it was a three-bedroom apartment, and one bedroom was dedicated to promotional materials, to his frauds, to paperwork. Um, and, and after going through it, we found uh, about 16 banker's boxes of evidence. So if you were to think of a standard banker's box size, I mean, you're talking paperwork and documents of, of strictly evidence. I mean, we had so much evidence of a continuation of a scheme. And what was also interesting is we were going through the evidence. We found money orders. We found personalized letters. Uh, we had victims who were reaching out to him and saying, actually, I'll, I'll quote this one. It says, P.S. Thank you. I wish I could do the January offer number one franchise territory opportunity, but no unencumbered money in bank account. My great grandson's monthly auto insurance increased from four thirty three uh, per month. And so as we started reading some of these personalized letters, the, the victims were thanking him for the opportunity to make a little bit more extra cash, uh, that they wanted opportunities to do more. And he kept these letters. He held them. He had them. Um, and he still would take their checks and deposit them or cash them. However, he would negotiate those. Um, on another one, he said, uh, one of the victims wrote, you had me worried for a while. I mailed you on December 20th. I thought I may have been scammed. I'm glad it took you more than a month for you to get back to me. I, I really don't know if he was glad that it took him for more than a month. I think he was more glad that he got back to him because some of the victims he would, he would talk with, but these victims really were excited for this opportunity. Um, and, and he was literally just stealing their money. Uh, I mean, he, he didn't care about them. He just wanted to, to take their money and use it for his personal use. And you know, what's sad is that a lot of times these victims they they will be re-victimized in other scams, you know, and it seems like, uh, you know, that they're they're in a situation where they're able to be um, once again brought into another scam, and that's really sad because generally with a scammer, they tell one person who tells someone else who victimizes and continues to victimize these these individuals. Yeah, and we do see that a lot, and and in this particular. Uh, scheme is is once the scheme kind of ended, um, some of the schemes he would actually send out, you know, how he claimed it was money back guaranteed or or gift certificate or gift card um, guaranteed. He would send them these these papers that were called vouchers. I mean, they said voucher on them, and he said this this program didn't do as good as we thought. Use it on the next program. This is a credit to the next program that I send you. And so he would just continue to string along the victims so they wouldn't report it, that they would think that it was coming. And so by the time some of the victims 
actually felt like they were swindled, they, it was a year later, like some of the evidence was gone. It was destroyed. And, and he used the same mailing list. In fact, I, another quote that I have from another victim, he wrote, uh, one of his companies was AGS and one of the new companies that he did in 2018. And he, the victim wrote, AGS, I hope your gift card program is legit and doable. I have been ripped off by gift card programs before, like the company in Florida and California, looking forward to what you have to offer. And so as we see, the same victims are being re-victimized because he has the lists. He's sending the same victims, the same lists, um, just different promotions to try to entice them to participate. And I thought it was interesting that this victim was also scammed in Florida and California where he had been operating uh, prior. And so these personalized letters, uh, I, I, I've probably got hundreds of personalized letters uh, to this, to the, ultimately to Mr. Fordham that were going to accounts owned and operated by him. So in this case, because these individuals had been scammed before, it could have really been, he, he could have been the same person that scammed them previously. They just didn't know because um, he changed the name of the company. Exactly. So he's arrested now. So now what happens after he's arrested, he's sitting in jail, he's awaiting his trial. So what's, what's happening now? So it was really interesting because once he was in custody, his whole, he tried to downplay his involvement. Uh, he tried to downplay his role into it. And it, he didn't think it was that big of a deal. Again, he was arrested in 1998. He maybe five months in prison and he was out. And so he really thought he wasn't going to get a lot of time. And I think we have an audio clip uh, that talks about the deal that he was trying to make with prosecutors. We got a deal in place. So I'll probably end up having to do um, anywhere between 18 and 24 months to one of the, you know, one of the, one of the camps. So he, he really, he really didn't think he was going to get any time from, from listening to that audio clip. It was like, oh, you know, not a big deal. I'm going to do a little time uh, in some like camp. It's, you know, it's going to be uh, no, no problem. Yeah. I mean, he really underplayed his role in this. And every piece of evidence shows that he was operating this, that he was responsible. And while there were other people involved in the scheme, um, we only charged Mr. Fordham because the case was built so solid against him. Um, it, it, it was just, it was just very clean to charge him because it was so obvious how he was doing these frauds. In fact, I think he even talks about it in another phone call. He talks about how he took full responsibility and that no one else was charged. I got it all straightened out. So I don't have to worry about any employees, no co-defendants, all that stuff. I, I accept the full responsibility. Wow. Everything, even though I wasn't even here. Oh, so he, so okay, so that's why. No, that was another reason why no one else was charged because he definitely um said, "Hey, it was all me." Yeah, he he he, he was at least telling people that uh, this was just a you know this was my business. It was a good business, but uh, I wanted to be. I wanted to take the blame. I didn't want any of my employees to get in trouble because again, he said it was a multi multi million dollar company, but in reality, it was just a way for him to steal money. So um, after and, he's been arrested, he stayed on the, um, arrested in jail. He stayed on the whole idea that he was a legit company and that he was a good guy. That's what he was telling everyone. 
And, and so the interesting thing about this case, a lot of white collar crimes, a lot of fraud cases, we don't see, um, we don't see them detained. A lot of times uh, an arrest will be made, they'll make their initial appearance and they're released from custody. Um, however, because he was using internet, he was working from home, we didn't feel, we as, and, and I include that both from the investigator standpoint, but the attorneys, uh, the prosecutor, prosecutors on this case, they didn't feel that he should be out in the community. They felt that if he could work from home and scam all of these victims and have access to reach out to these victims, that he really was a financial risk to the community. And so in our district, in the District of Utah, they actually detained him from the time of his arrest and extradition to Utah um, up until his plea deal. They were able to keep him into custody because he could have swindled people via, you know, via the mail. And I mean, it's really easy to be able to send out letters from the comfort of your home. So he, so I, I, you alluded to a plea deal, so he didn't have a jury trial? No. So initially he had thought about going to trial from what I could tell, but um, in fact, from the prosecutor side, I think they really wanted to go to trial, but at some point they decided that a plea deal would be sufficient to meet uh, justice. And so uh, what actually ended up happening was as part of the plea deal, he pled to the six counts in the indictment, which are all mail fraud uh, or fraud and swindles charges through the mail, which is 18 U.S. Code 1344. And he admitted to knowingly devising and, and working the scheme and uh, used the mail to further that scheme. And another interesting thing is he actually admitted in his statement in advance of plea um, that it was in connection of mass mailing and he victimized 10 or more persons over the age of 55. Um, so he had actually admitted to, to an elder, elder fraud scheme where he was actually accepting money from elderly victims. So it was when we talked about the previous in the previous episode that it appeared to be targeted. It actually was. Yeah. At least that's what he admitted in the sentencing plea. So, he knew the way, the way that these the monies were coming in, some of them were in trust, some of them were in estates. When you were, he was receiving these checks, um, you can even tell by the handwriting, this, the really shaky handwriting, that it's not a 20-year-old or 30-year-old that's writing out and filling out the forms. You can tell that it's an elderly person by, by some of the writings. Now, that's not for everybody. It's, it's hard to describe that, but for some people... Um, you could tell that it was someone who had a disability or who was elderly. So he just he just didn't care. It's, uh, so it's a good thing that um, he was brought to justice for these crimes. So tell me about um, his sentence. So he he put he had a plea. Was he sentenced to any time? Yeah. So so as we had talked before, you know, the case started in in 2014 where we identified that 1.5 million. But the case actually continued after we made that arrest and we recovered all of those bankers boxes. We still spent uh, hundreds of hours processing all the evidence from his house. And so we, we included two additional schemes. Uh, they, they were called Monster Gift Card or MGC and uh, AGS gift cards. And so in addition to those victims, we found more victims. And uh, and we found more losses. We we identified almost two hundred and forty thousand dollars in losses. So in his admission and to his plea deal, 
um, or the agreement was that he admitted to to doing 1.834 million. Sorry, so it'd be 1,834,000 dollars is the amount of restitution that he agreed to do. And so in that plea agreement, he also agreed to 72 months of imprisonment and three three years of probation. So it's for a case like this where we see a white collar that doesn't go to to trial, um, we felt that that was a, a pretty good sentence, especially as it included all the restitution to all the victims that we identified. Well, that was a great conclusion to the case because he he actually, you know, there's always a um, for every action, there's a reaction. And so his reaction was he went to jail and it wasn't for what he thought, as it said in the in the audio clip, that it was going to be 18 to 24 months in a, in a camp. He actually got six years. Yeah. It goes without saying that people should always try to, um, you know, verify information. But tell me, what do you think, what can someone do to prevent becoming a victim? You know, I think one of the phrases that always comes up is is that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Um, really, you your scam radar should be going off. I mean, you should be really thinking about whether or not that is truly a scam or if it's legitimate. Um, because, I mean, I've never known a company to be able to pr- produce over 900% in returns. And so when this company comes out and says, money back guarantee or ironclad guarantee um and you're going to get almost a thousand percent in in returns it's just it is too good to be true and and that's really what it was it was it was so good to be true that it, it really wasn't true and so that's that's one of the things is is having your um having your guard up on something that that sounds too good to be true i mean other things that you can do is is to verify whether or not you're being you know, part of a whether or not you're being scammed is using open source uh, information like search engines, going to uh, the internet and searching for uh, other complaints. Um, sometimes that might include businesses like the Better Business Bureau or uh, ripoff reports or some of these companies that collect complaints on behalf of the victims. Um, another really good research tool is is the company registered to do business? If they're claiming that they're out of Utah and they have a business in Utah, they should have the proper documentation with the state. And so in the state of Utah, you can actually go and look at business entities and you can type in the entity search and see if it's a valid company and whether or not it's been closed or anything like that. And so that's another good tool that every, every state can reach out to their, um, to their business entity search platform or their uh, department of uh, commerce and find out whether or not they truly are registered to do business in that state. And they can also go to like the attorney general's office or the FTC, things of that nature. Um, And, um, you know, the other thing is, is that it's important. I don't think I I can't stress it enough, but coming from you as, as an agent, the importance of reporting it, talk about reporting the crime. Yeah, a lot of a lot of regardless, a lot of people don't think about reporting it. Um, sometimes they feel embarrassed. Sometimes they're ashamed. And in some of the cases with the gift card scams that he was doing, it was only a couple hundred dollars, and not like Paul Park, which was thousands of dollars. And so when they think, oh, it's just a hundred dollars, it's not going to matter. It really does, because if we have a thousand people 
who report a $100 loss, those numbers add up. And in fact, the attorney on the case that helped prosecute this, um, my favorite quote that he said was, by the hundreds, he stole millions. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and so it's the little amounts that add up. So reporting it to the local police department, report it in the jurisdiction that you live, report it in the jurisdiction where the crime occurred, um, reporting it to there's companies and agencies out there that will, will collect those complaints. Uh, the U S postal inspection service, you can go to our website and you can actually file a fraud complaint there, um, which will come directly to postal inspectors. You could go to, uh, the IC3, which is the Internet, Internet Crimes Complaint Center that's done by the FBI. Um, sometimes you can even go directly to the Postal Service. There's a complaint database that you can go on through USPS and file that. And a lot of those we, we also get if it's, uh, if it's fraud related. Uh, there's, there's so many. Um, the Federal Trade Commission also does their consumer complaints, but even going to your state, the, the AG's office or the Division of Securities or Department of Commerce, it just really depends on what type of scam or what type of fraud occurred as to which jurisdiction is best suited to handle that type of complaint. Thank you. Thank you so much for all this good information. Uh, I, I thank you for being on our show, uh, Inspector Travis Smoot, for um, hanging out with us, not but not just one day, but two days coming back. And hopefully we can have you back if any more uh, interesting items come up about this case or another case. Uh, that's it for our show. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode of Entry, Greed, and Deception. Be certain to subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends and family to subscribe, too. Thank you and stay scam savvy. Behind the Badge, Ripped from the Case Files, is brought to you by the United States Postal Inspection Service. For more information or to learn more about postal inspectors, please visit USPIS.gov. Or to file a complaint, call 877-876-2455.